the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It is almost 4 o'clock in Southern California. This is Southern California Live on KKLA. I'm Bob Lapine. Thanks for being with us this afternoon on the ride home, if that's where you're headed, wherever you're headed, wherever you're listening. We're glad you're tuned in this afternoon. Pastor and author and speaker Sinclair Ferguson, theologian, tells a story that when he was in his 30s, he was approached by a publisher wanting him to write a book on the subject of prayer. And Ferguson said, I was wise enough as a young man to see past the flattery and to confess to the person who sought me out that I did not believe I possessed the spiritual maturity necessary to write such a book. Ferguson said, I still had much to learn about this most difficult discipline. So the publisher asked him, can you think of anyone who you could recommend to write the book? And Ferguson said, well, what about this guy? And the publisher confessed to Ferguson, well, actually, you weren't the first person we we approached to write the book. We've already been to the person you suggested, and that person, much older and wiser, had turned them down for similar reasons. So Ferguson said, well, what about this fellow? And they said, well, we actually went to him too. And Ferguson said this went on for three or four names. Here's the point. <laughs> who who feels adequate? If I was to ask you on a scale of one to 10, how's your prayer life? How many of you say, you know what? I'm nailing it with my prayer life. I mean, this is an area in my life as a follower of Christ I, I'm, I'm not great with Bible study. I'm not good with evangelism. I'm other spiritual disciplines I'm weak on, but boy, prayer, that's, I'm nailing it there. I don't know anybody who says that. In fact, I want to read something to you. I remember reading this more than a decade ago in a book called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. I read this quote and I was just there saying, amen, and nodding my head. He said, few of us have the courage to articulate the quiet cynicism or the spiritual weariness that develops in us when heartfelt prayer goes unanswered. We keep our doubts hidden even from ourselves because we don't want to sound like bad Christians. No reason to add shame to our cynicism, so our hearts shut down. The glib way people talk about prayer often reinforces our cynicism. We end conversations with, well, I'll keep you in my prayers. We have a vocabulary of prayer speak. I'll lift you up in prayer. I'll remember you in prayer. Many of us who use these phrases never get around to doing what we say we're going to do. Why? Because at the end of the day, we don't really believe prayer makes much difference. Miller goes on to say, cynicism and glibness are just part of the problem. The most common frustration is the activity of praying itself. We last for about 15 seconds, and then out of nowhere, the day's to-do list pops up in our minds, and we're off on a tangent. We catch ourselves by sheer force of will. We go back to praying, but before we know it, something's happened again. The guilt sets in. There must be something wrong with me. 
Other Christians don't seem to have the same trouble praying. After five minutes, we give up saying, I'm no good at this. Might as well get some work done. And then he adds in, complicating this is the enormous confusion about what makes for a good prayer. We vaguely sense that we should begin by focusing on God, not on ourselves. So when we start to pray, we try to worship. That works for a minute. Then it feels contrived. Then guilt sets in again. We wonder, did I worship enough? Did I really mean it? Then in a burst of spiritual enthusiasm, we put together a a prayer list, but praying through that list gets dull. Nothing seems to happen. The list gets long and cumbersome. We lose touch with many of the people we're praying for. Praying feels like we're whistling in the wind. When someone is healed or helped, we wonder if that would have happened anyway, and then we lose the list. He says, it's worse if we stop and think about how odd prayer is. If we have a phone conversation, we hear a voice and can respond. When we pray, we're talking to the air. Only crazy people talk to themselves. How do we talk with a spirit, somebody who doesn't speak with an audible voice? And if we believe that God talks to us in prayer, how do we distinguish our thoughts from his thoughts? Prayer is confusing. We vaguely know what the Holy Spirit, that that the Holy Spirit is somehow involved But we're never sure how or when the Spirit will show up or even what that means. Some people seem to have a lot of the Spirit. We don't. And he ends it by saying, forget about God for a minute. Where do you fit in? Can you pray for whatever you want? What's the point of praying if if God already knows what you need? Why bore God? It sounds like we're nagging. Have you felt any of that? I mean, as I read that, are you going, "Ah, yeah, I can relate to that. When I read that, I thought, Thank you, Paul Miller, for being honest and articulating what a lot of us would not want to say in polite company because we wouldn't want to appear to be bad Christians, just like he said. So I'm thinking you're like me, and this is an area where if you're calibrating your own scale of spiritual disciplines, you would say prayer is an area that always could use some work. I had the opportunity a few weeks ago to be with a friend who— This has become central to his ministry, helping us think about and then develop the the practice of prayer to be a more vibrant part of our spiritual lives. His name is Daniel Henderson. He leads a a ministry called Strategic Renewal. And I, I emailed him and I said, can we get some time on Southern California Live and just talk about this subject? So he's with us this afternoon. Daniel, thank you again for being here. Nice to have you on the program. <laughs> thank you, Bob. Great to be in conversation with you. So as I read through Paul Miller's description, and I'm sure you've read this before yourself, you can relate to what he's saying, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, um, I readily confess I'm not a natural prayer guy by any means, you know, but the Lord through the School of Hard Knocks teaches us, you know, a little bit how to, to get better at it. And we, we never graduate, but we keep uh, endeavoring for sure. <laughs> so so tell me about your journey to this being central to what God's called you to in ministry, because if you are not a natural prayer guy, then how does prayer become a big part of what God's called you to? Well, you know, early on, uh, Bob, I, I as a pastor, uh, came across Acts chapter 6 and verse 4, where the early church leaders gave themselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Obviously, I got the ministry of the Word part. I, you know, went to seminary for seven years, studied under some great teachers and expositors, worked for them. But I, I said, Lord, you got to teach me what the other part of this is. Uh, it, it was... Uh, 
that one great Puritan who wrote that prayer is one half of our ministry, and it gives to the other half all of its effectiveness and power. Charles Bridges wrote that. And so I said, Lord, you got to teach me what this means, because I feel like I'm flying the airplane with one wing. And uh, so, you know, for me, and probably for all of us, it was a journey of some incredible desperation and some very hard ministry assignments. But it was also the realization that, um, as D.A. Carson says, the only way you learn to pray is really by praying with people who know how to pray. And God really put it on my heart to begin to pray with my people, obviously pray with my family. And um, I, I I hope I taught our people how to pray by praying with them, but I know our people taught me how to pray by praying together. And uh, by God's grace, what was an incredible area of weakness became a strength so that I knew it was a gift and not a skill. And God just developed an extraordinary prayer culture in uh, the churches that I pastored that brought real transformation, uh, certainly to my own life, but to an entire church. And, uh, you know, we, we really began to understand why Jesus said, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. In, in that journey, did what, was there something that clicked, or was it just a slow slog that got you to a place where you said, I feel like we're in the right place when it comes to prayer? Yeah, I think the, the biggest turning point was the recognition between uh, Prayer as simply seeking God's hand versus seeking His face. And, of course, the model prayer that Jesus gave us um, starts there, and we know that. Uh, but the other thing that really hit me was that when Jesus said, pray this way, both in Matthew 6 and Luke 11, where he gave a kind of a condensed version of that model prayer, in the original language, it's a present imperative. So it's not a suggestion. <laughs> it's actually Jesus saying, I- I'm commanding you to always learn to pray like this. And so when I realized that, that prayer always begins with God's face before it gets to his hand, the way I like to say it is he's worthy, we're needy, and, and keeping that order in mind becomes transformational. And then learning how to practically follow that pattern Jesus gave out of the Scripture, I think that was a turning point for me. And then as we began to experience it as a church in you know multiple prayer meetings a week and prayer retreats, I just begin to see the transformational nature of prayer. I always say prayer is not simply therapeutic, it's transformational when we learn to pray, you know, as Jesus really instructed us to do. So the pastors who are listening to us this afternoon and are going, you just said prayer meeting, multiple prayer meetings a week, and they're thinking, <laughs> if, if I if I put in the, the bulletin or got up next Sunday and said, you know, we're going to start having multiple prayer meetings, he said, I'd, I'd be meeting here with maybe one old dear saint who would show up faithfully and the two of us would run out of things to pray about in about five minutes. Uh, No doubt. No doubt. Well, as you know, Bob, we, we do coaching with pastors on some of the practical principles of developing a prayer culture. And one of the things we, we really emphasize is that a prayer culture always emanates from the epicenter of leadership. And um, before you start calling prayer meetings, you really have to change the paradigm of your leadership team, that as leaders, our primary duty is to commit ourselves uh, together to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Acts 6-4 was not a reference to their personal prayer lives. It's a reference to how they led. And I always say when, I know virus is a bad term right now, but when the prayer virus incubates in the leadership team, it spreads the entire church because this passion and competency, honestly, to, to seek God's face— in what we call scripture-fed, spirit-led, worship-based prayer, begins to spread into every part of the church. 
And then when you call an all-church prayer meeting, people already have an appetite because you've been experiencing it uh, versus just adding another meeting to the week and you have the same small group of prayer fanatics show up. Uh, the real goal is to get it embedded into the very culture of the church, starting with the culture of leadership. Well, let me pull back from church, and you used three terms there that you kind of ran past, and I just want to make sure that we we catch those. You said effective prayer needs to be Scripture-fed. Explain what you mean by that. Yes, you know, we often say that uh, whoever starts a conversation tends to guide it. And uh, when it comes to prayer, I want God to start the conversation, because uh, obviously he, he knows my needs before I ask his his will is found in his word. Uh, John Piper has often said that where the mind is not brimming with Scripture, the heart is seldom brimming with prayer. And, um, you know, Mueller, in his autobiography, talks about the fact of trying to pray without an open Bible, and he, he gets distracted and, and his mind drifts, but when he prayed out of the Scripture, he stayed focused. And what's fascinating to me, Bob, is that the only record we have of how the early church prayed is found in Acts chapter 4, where they came out of the initial persecution. They raised their voices together in one accord. And they didn't start with their needs. They started with the Scripture. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth. Those are all extracts from the Old Testament. And then they actually quote from Psalm 2. And so um, I, I always say, let God start the conversation. Uh, Eugene Peterson all said, Peterson said, all prayer is answering speech, because the first word everywhere and always is God's word to us, not our word to him. And so prayer is not just telling God what's on your mind. He already knows that. But prayer is, I call it, intimacy with God that leads to the fulfillment of his purposes. And if that's your definition of prayer, it's just it's got to start in the word of God. So are you saying that when you set apart time for personal prayer, the first thing you do is open your Bible and start reading the scriptures? Exactly. Yep, and I, I let the Scripture give language to my prayers. Obviously, first and foremost, as Jesus taught, to to illumine me and remind me of the truth and character of God as the beginning place of my prayer. And obviously, the Word of God is full of descriptions of the God of the Word. <laughs> and and you said it needs to be Scripture fed, and then you said Spirit led. How can I know if the Holy Spirit is the one leading my prayers, or if it's just my own imagination bouncing around in me? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, one of the things that has come to me recently, Bob, is that, you know, when I open the Bible, I'm actually having a conversation with the author, the, the Holy Spirit who wrote it, who who actually now lives in me to help me understand what he meant by what he said, and to make it alive in my heart so that I can commune with him on that basis. And so uh, I, I don't think you can separate the Spirit and the Word. Uh, obviously, the Spirit of God yielding to the indwelling Spirit to illumine your heart, illumine your mind, to ask you how to pray, rather than just, um, you know, blowing into God's presence, telling Him what He's supposed to do to arrange the universe according to your specifications for a comfortable life. Uh, Really, uh, the Word and Spirit work together, and so it's a place of surrender and yieldedness. And I've learned, Bob, that, you know, I may have a prayer list, but I think the Holy Spirit has a prayer list, and if I can begin in worship and surrender— as Jesus said, your kingdom come, your will be done. I believe that's the point at which we really are praying in the Spirit. And and worship, because that's the third component that you mentioned when you talked about this. Worship in personal prayer time for you? Do you, do you look around and see if anybody's watching and then sing a hymn? What do you do? <laughs> 
Yeah, I just express my worship to God in praise. I, I tend to write my prayers. I like to journal. And so a lot of times, uh, and I'm a bit ADD, if, if I just sit there, you know, staring at the ceiling, I'll, I'll drift like Paul Miller talked about. Uh, so for me, uh, it involves uh, writing out my praise in my journal. I, I know some pastors who they always walk when they pray just to stay actively engaged, but just articulating the truth of God in worship and trying to be specific, you know, uh, maybe the theme of God's faithfulness is in the text. And uh, just saying, Lord, thank you that you have been faithful to me in this way and at that time. And and uh, I would say specificity breeds authenticity. And so trying to be as specific as you can in how the character of God has continually intersected with your life as really the springboard of your personal praise and worship. And do you ever find yourself thinking in the midst of your prayers or after your prayers is this really just an exercise in futility? I mean, I know the Bible, this is an act of faith to, to pray, but, <laughs> yeah. but do you ever find doubt creeping in? Well, I think we all do, to be honest. Uh, to say we didn't would be, uh, you know, a declaration that we're superhuman. You know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But uh, just to circle back to a statement I kind of threw out there quickly, I, I really believe our definition of prayer determines our destination of prayer. And so if your definition of prayer is talking to God, as Calvin Miller says, that just makes God one big ear and us one big mouth. So, you know, you, you would wonder, did that work? You know, did God listen? But the definition, again, I, I just reiterated for me, is that prayer is intimacy with God that leads to the fulfillment of His purposes. And if that's my definition, obviously the destination is, is wonderful. And I don't have a whole lot of doubt about praying that way, because I know that God wants me to be intimate with Him, and especially if I'm praying out of the Word of God with the heart of surrender to the Holy Spirit, I can trust that He is leading me to His purposes in my journey of faith. We're talking with Daniel Henderson about the subject of prayer and how we do that corporately, how we do that personally, how we get better at this. So if you're talking to somebody who is a on a scale of one to ten, they would say, "I'm down at the low end. I'm a I'm a one or a two or maybe a three on a good day." I I would like to get better. Um, what's the starting point? Well, you know, this may sound a little radical in a Western mindset, but uh, I would say, uh, strange as it sounds, find some other people to start praying with. Um, you know, Albert Muller's made the observation that there's no I in the Lord's Prayer. And I wrote a devotional some years ago, Bob, that said, if I were the devil, I would do everything I could to keep Christians from praying together. Hmm. And uh, I, I believe that, in fact, people often ask me, which is more important, private prayer or corporate prayer? My answer is yes. Hmm. It's like asking which leg do you need to walk on more, your right leg or your left leg? But in Western thought in particular, Bob, we have amputated our corporate prayer leg, and we are hmm. lame on our private prayer leg. The devil loves it so, so strange as it sounds— uh, I believe that one of the great things to begin to do is just find some other like-hearted believers and start getting into a rhythm of praying together, which I think will give you a deeper conviction and confidence in prayer as you pray on your own. And um, I'm just a huge fan of the corporate nature of prayer, which I believe is, is just embedded in the New Testament in ways that today I think we have forgotten in the American Church. 
So you travel a lot. You're busy. Does this mean that when you're home, you carve out time for that? Or while you're on the road, you you Zoom or phone call with, with brothers and pray with them? Yes. Um, yep. Of course, our staff, uh, with my family, uh, with other pastors, they're just regular rhythms of prayer. When I was a pastor, I, um, you know, I had the joy of probably leading five to six prayer meetings a week, not, not meetings with prayer, but meetings to pray. And not because I was spiritual, uh, just because I knew that, that that's how I learned to pray, and that's how I'm going to teach my people to pray. I always tell pastors, you can't point the way, you have to lead the way. And obviously your prayer life will be enriched as you learn to pray with your people. And that doesn't have to be an all-church prayer meeting. You know, that can be with some men on a morning or staff members or some friends on a Zoom call. Uh, I just think there's something very powerful about praying with others, that the Spirit works in such a way uh, that isn't always true personally. It'd be the difference between singing by yourself all the time versus singing with the church, right? Hmm, right. There's some things that are just powerful when we do them together with the family of God. Well, and one of the things I appreciate about your ministry is that you've helped me to see that prayer is not just a one-note song, but there are many different ways that we can come together and pray together corporately. And and I, I just kind of explain what that looks like in some of the different ways we can pray together. Yeah, so, you know, over the years, um, on a Sunday morning, really early as a pastor, I would lead prayer, and we would just open the next psalm and and read it and ask ourselves, what does this tell us about God and His character? And we jump right in and just worship the Lord, uh, inserting singing. I always say singing is prayer put to notes. Um, and uh, we would obviously have a point of surrender based on the Lord's prayer, uh, His kingdom come. Uh, we would then prayer walk during our request time and pray for the church and all the needs and, and gather back together and get ready for the service, anticipating, you know, the battle of the day. I would do similar things with the men of our church, our staff. We've done uh, multi-day prayer summits, um, had the joy probably leading, I don't know, maybe a hundred of those over the years, where we actually go away with no agenda, and people can engage in spontaneous scripture reading and song, and we would break up into gender-specific groups to pray for one another, bear one another's burdens, um, inserting prayer into the worship service, you know, uh, stopping in the middle of a sermon to pray what you just taught on, I would say the best way to apply God's Word is to pray it. So uh, uh, we describe it in our coaching, Bob, as building sidewalks where the footpaths already exist, just finding uh, opportunities to change the way we pray in environments where we're already getting together in fellowship with other believers. Daniel Henderson is joining us this afternoon on Southern California Live. Again, he is with Strategic Renewal. And the website, Daniel, is at strategicrenewal.com or .org? Com. Yep. Strategic com. So I'm, I'm going to encourage people to go there, pastors to go there, laymen and women to go there to look for more information. We're, we're going to continue talking about how we get better at prayer, but we've got to take a quick time out. Uh, we, we will be back with more with Daniel Henderson on Southern California Live here in just a minute. Stay with us. Talking about prayer this afternoon on Southern California Live on KKLA. I'm Bob Lapine. Daniel Henderson is joining us from Strategic Renewal. Website is strategicrenewal.com. Daniel, how do we understand the scriptural injunction that we are to pray without ceasing? Does that mean 24-7? Does that mean just don't quit tomorrow? What does that mean? 
<laughs> well, so my answer will be a little unorthodox in that regard. Um, so I often I often say that uh, prior to the printing press, the primary way people received truth was in community, and they would tend to apply it that way uh, instinctively first, and then individually second. So uh, it's a little radical, but I believe that when the Thessalonians heard that being read to them from the Apostle Paul, that actually what they heard was, all y'all don't stop praying together. And you think about that, that almost blows the mind of a Westerner, but uh, (laughs) pray without ceasing was given to the church. And I believe the first application of that is actually that God's people should continually find opportunities to be praying together in community. Uh, But I also believe that it would be similar to walking in the Spirit, you know, an awareness of the Holy Spirit, uh, walking with a sensitivity to the Spirit, and prayer, of course, is dependence on God, dependence on the living and dwelling Spirit. So I don't think it's either or, but as I mentioned before the break, Bob, I think we have really uh, robbed ourselves of, of the power of what the New Testament primarily had in mind about prayer, and that is that we pray together collectively. Gene Getz says... You know, Western society is marked by rugged individualism. We think in terms of I, me, and my, rather than we, our, and us. And so, as unorthodox as my answer sounds, I think Paul was primarily saying to the Church, don't stop praying together, believers. Constantly be praying in prayer for me, you know, obviously for spiritual battle. And I think, again, that fuels our own personal prayer life. And I could say, I might as well get radical on you here as well. Uh, A lot of times pastors will say, well, you know, the corporate prayer level of our church will never be any stronger than the private prayer lives of our people. And certainly there's truth to that, but I want to make a radical switch and ask the question, could it be that the private prayer lives of our people will never be any stronger than the corporate prayer life of our church? Hmm. In my ministry over the years, people learned to pray by praying, uh, and it became a win-win because the corporate prayer inspired and broadened their prayer life when it's done biblically and right. But their private prayers deepened what they did corporately. So uh, that goes back to my right leg, left leg analogy. And I know it's a bit radical, but I, I actually think that's an insight that's so vital for today. Daniel Henderson joining us this afternoon on Southern California Live as we talk about prayer. He leads a ministry called Strategic Renewal. You can find it at strategicrenewal.com. You've traveled around the world talking to believers around the world. Are our brothers and sisters in other cultures better at praying than we are in America? Uh, Well, hard to know. You know, it depends on what better means. I will tell you this, they're more passionate in so many ways, and um, I think that's because uh, they're more desperate. They recognize their need. And uh, as we know, Bob, Western society could easily be paralleled with the Laodicean church, where rich and increase of good, have need of nothing. And so I do think there's a desperation in their hearts that, that certainly drives them to prayer. I remember a Ugandan pastor saying to a group of us as we gathered uh, when I pastored in Sacramento, uh, he said, my message to America is desperation or devastation, take your pick. Hmm. And so... You know, I think a lot of these cultures, they, they don't have all the other stuff to rely on. They they recognize their need for God, and that's one of our challenges here. Um, in fact, I often say about the early church, Bob, but why did they pray like they did and we don't? And, and I think it's because the early church actually believed the Holy Spirit was the how-to, and we tend to think He helps us with our how-to. He, he's like an app on our phone rather than the operating system itself. <laughs> and I think in a lot of places in the world, without all of the other props— 
they recognize their need for God, and um, I do think that's the difference. So help us on a, on a practical—I mean, the Bible does not explain to us why God commands us to pray. Um, and and I, I know for many of us, there are times in life when it's just instinctive. We don't have to be commanded to pray, but when you're in the midst of mm-hmm. a firefight, when something's going wrong in your family, you just default to pray in, instinctively. Why does God make this such a priority for us? He already knows whatever it is we're going to pray. He's already sovereign over what's going on. You know, all, all of the questions that come up, he's all good. He's all knowing. Why do we need to pray to him? Sure. Well, one of my books uh, was really rooted in Second Corinthians 3.18, a book called Transforming Prayer, which I, I found as an anchor verse for why I pray. We all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image uh, from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord, that we, we pray uh, for, for transformation. Um, and if I could tell an anecdote, for 20 years I led the men in our church in a Monday morning prayer time at 6 a.m., which I didn't pick that. The men did. They were all jacked up about a new work week, and I was in a body bag, typically, you know, after a long weekend. Uh, and I remember one morning saying to the Lord, Lord, why am I doing this? You know, I'm tired. I'm weary. These guys have bad breath. You know, there's always a hijacker, you know, on the prayer meeting in the room. And, you know, why am I praying? And sometimes in my journey, it was, you know, to, to for approval to look like a good pastor or that God would cause my church to grow or even revival. But I, I really had the Lord convict me with this thought, that, that the only enduring motive for prayer is that God is worthy to be sought. And I think, you know, our motivation has to be rooted in the fact that God is worthy to be sought, and that when we pray, our life brings glory to God. I remember being on an interview in Portland with the Portland radio host when one of my books came out, and she said, you know, well, what is the purpose of prayer after all? And, of course, Bob, I think the purpose of prayer is the purpose of everything, glory of God. And so, yes, I think when we pray, we receive peace, um, we receive direction. There's so many benefits, but ultimately we pray so that our lives, abiding and rooted in Him, will bring glory to God, that the excellence of the power will be of God and not of us. And, um, you know, I know that sounds a little pie in the sky, but I really think that's why we pray. Yeah, God will meet my needs. He's promised to do that. He feeds the birds and clothes the lilies. But if I can seek first the kingdom of God and be transformed into the image of Christ, and whatever happens in my life is rooted in a humble dependence on Him, uh, then when I cross the finish line, I, I can really say that I endeavored through, through a praying life to bring glory to God in all that I did. I remember reading an essay from C.S. Lewis years ago on this subject where he was wrestling with the question of why pray. And and he said, Mm -hmm. somebody had raised the question, and he said, well, let me ask you a question. If God knows that you need air in your lungs, why do you breathe? I mean, if if God knows you need air in your lungs, he will, he'll put the air in your lungs, right? You don't need to do anything. He will, he'll make arrangements for that. He said, you breathe because you're human, because it's, it's in you. It's instinctive. You, you breathe because you have to, to live. And yes, God knows you need air. He's provided the air, but, but it's still a part of how we're created. And he was making the point that, that prayer really is a part of what God's built into us. Union with him, fellowship with him, intimacy with him is a part of how we're designed. And if we're running away from that, we're running away from what he's made us to be, right? 
Exactly. And, you know, as you know, ultimately missing the reason that he's left us here post-salvation. We always talk about it being easier in a lot of ways for him to just to beam us up when we got saved, but he's left us here on mission to demonstrate the life of Christ that has to be rooted in our dependence on Christ and our yieldedness that he would live his life through us in a life of prayer. Are there some people who are just I mean, God just made them with the gift of prayer. And we, we talk about people who are in prayer warriors in churches, the ones who, when you say, we are having a prayer meeting, they say, it's about time. I've been waiting for this. I can't wait to get there. Are there just some people who God's wired that way, do you think? Uh, you know, it could be. You know, it's it's like saying someone has the gift of evangelism, and, and there are some people who are good at it, have a burden for it, but I think we all have a calling to evangelize. Uh, I think most people who have a tendency toward prayer somewhere in their journey have have been broken, and they have experienced that desperation, and they have understood the grace of God in their weakness, and so they would, again, have a natural hunger to want to participate in that. But clearly, we all need to get to that point. And and I don't tend to try to rank people by prayer warrior or non-prayer warrior, because I think we all just need to jump in and learn together. But Certainly, I think some people's journey has taught them their need for God in an extraordinary way. And, you know, honestly, I, I could say this, I think we all do. I, I want that. Hard as it is, that, that's where I want to be, because uh, that's obviously what brings glory to God through a, a dependent life. Anybody in your life or in church history, as you've looked at it, who stands out to you as a prayer hero? Well, certainly some people in my life. Uh, one of my mentors was a man named Peter Lord. And he was a pastor in Florida, Southern Baptist pastor, led some great renewal work in the Southern Baptist Convention. And he was the first one that exposed me to the, the reality of of seeking God's face and not just his hand. Had many opportunities to be with him in prayer and in fellowship. He made the statement that, you know, most Christians pray out of crisis or a grocery list, period. And, and really, again, pointing me toward just the worthiness of God as my passion in prayer. Um, obviously, as you know, uh, Bob, I worked for some years with John MacArthur, and I remember we would get in the prayer room every Wednesday morning for two hours on our knees with our Bibles open and uh, learning to pray together from the Scripture. But honestly, it has been the people of my church who have really taught me to pray. And uh, I think as pastors, we need to, to just keep our hearts humble and realize we just need to do this, and as we do it, God's going to teach us together because the same Spirit that lives in me lives in them, and when we pray together, He does a unique work to teach us all. Daniel, I know you've got to go, and you've been kind to take some time out with us this afternoon. I want to I want to let you go. Uh, I, I want to tell our listeners, I'm hoping that in the time we've got together between now and, and uh uh, the end of the hour, I'm hoping you'll call in and share with us prayer breakthroughs in your life, how God has moved you to prayer, how God's used prayer, how he's answered prayer in your life. I'll give you the number here in just a minute. But let me also uh, point you to Daniel Henderson's website, strategicrenewal.com, for more information about how you, your church, your family can be more engaged in prayer. And, and I don't think there's anybody listening who would say, yeah, I don't need to check that out. So, Daniel, thank, for, thank you for the time this afternoon and for your work on this subject. God bless you, brother. Thank you, Bob. God bless you, man. And, and let me say to listeners, I, I want to hear from you. 888-52-TALKS is the number, 888-528-2557. Has, has your church had 
an unusual season of prayer? Or is it a regular rhythm in your church, in your own life, or in your own family? Have you seen God work through prayer? Encourage us with what have been prayer breakthroughs in your own life, in your own ministry, in your own as you walk as a follower of Christ. Again, the number is 888-52-TALKS, 888-528-2557. The lines are open. We'll be back to take your calls in just a minute. Maybe appropriate on a Friday afternoon as we uh, head up to 5 o'clock. Southern California Live on KKLA. We've been talking about prayer this afternoon. Uh, Daniel Henderson joined us from Strategic Renewal because I think prayer, I think we would all agree, prayer is one of those areas of weakness for many of us individually, maybe an area of weakness in your church. Uh, I would love to hear about uh, contradictory evidence for that if your church or if your own life is marked by deep abiding prayer, call us and share that with us at 888-52-TALKS. We'd love to talk to you. Daniel Henderson made the point that if we don't know where to get started, the Lord's Prayer is a model for us. I grew up in a church where every Sunday morning we recited the Lord's Prayer. It was just a part of the, the ritual. And I remember as a young teenager thinking, well, this seems to me to violate what Jesus had just talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, when you pray, don't engage in meaningless babble, in in meaningless repetition. And I sure looked around on Sunday morning and saw a lot of people doing what looked like meaningless repetition of the Lord's Prayer. They were reciting it from memory, but I don't know if they were really thinking about what they were saying. I wasn't as a teenager, excuse me, as a teenager. I wasn't thinking about the words I was praying. But, you know, you go back to the Lord's Prayer, this model prayer that that Jesus gives us, and it's it gives us the framework from which prayer can, can uh, flourish. J.C. Ryle, the Anglican in the late 1800s, says, we ought to strive to make the Lord's Prayer our model and our pattern in our approach to God. It should suggest to us the sort of things which we should pray for and the things we should pray against. The Lord's Prayer is there to teach us the relative place and proportion with which which we should give to various subjects in our prayers. The more we ponder and examine the Lord's Prayer, the more instructive and suggestive we will find it to be. So it's a great place to start. Richard Halverson, who was the chaplain of the Senate for many years, said this. He said, there are five reasons why most of us don't pray as we ought. He said, the first is unbelief. We don't pray the way we should because we don't really think it makes any difference or it does any good. Is that is that in your heart? And if it is, here's what I'd say. You have to answer that with a faith response. You have to say, okay, it doesn't feel like it's doing any good or making any difference. I can't I can't see it happening. So you have to say, I pray because God has instructed me that he listens, that he answers. And so by faith, I do what my father has asked me to do, whether I have the experience of it being um, something that, that I connect with 
or not. It's prayer is an act of faith. So he says the first reason we don't pray is because of unbelief. We answer that with, with faith. Second reason that we don't pray, he said, is because of indifference. We don't pray about something until a problem is huge. In fact, we often think if the problem's not big, we can take care of it on our own. <laughs> well, that's arrogance. That's pride. In fact, the antidote to indifference is an antidote of humility to say, I, like the old hymn, I need thee every hour. Every hour I need thee in prayer. So indifference is is a mark of pride. Third reason we often don't pray, Richard Halverson says, is because of priorities. We think other things are more important. I I can easily fall prey to thinking action is more important than prayer. Me getting after it is more important than me taking it to the Lord. Well, again, there's a pride root there, isn't there? That's me saying, Look, it's it's more important that I get after this than I bother you with it, God. When God has said, no, no, come to me, bring this to me, lay your burdens down here first, and let me empower the work you're going to be doing. So we don't pray because of unbelief, because of indifference, because of we have other priorities. Halverson says we we often don't pray because it's hard work. <laughs> It is hard work. We've we've talked about how easily distracted we are. We've talked about how we lose focus, how it feels unnatural, how it's uncomfortable. And guess who wants it to feel unnatural and uncomfortable? Not Jesus, but the enemy of your soul who wants you not to be involved in it. Here's the final thing Halverson says. He says, We often don't pray because we're more focused on the things of this world than the things of God, which don't mean as much to us. We often don't pray because we have not set our mind on things above, but we've set our mind on things that are on earth. And it should be just the opposite. In in John 14, when Jesus' disciples were troubled in their hearts because Jesus had just told them, I'm going away and you can't follow where I'm going. And they were troubled. And Peter says, I'll, I'll go anywhere you go. And Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times before it's morning. So they were troubled. And Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled. And then he said, believe in God, have faith, trust me, follow me, believe in God, believe in me. And then he said, in my father's house are many mansions, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. In other words, there's a heavenly reality that should shape everything that you're about here on earth. We need to remember, I I remember my mom often saying she would talk about people she knew who were, as she said, so heavenly minded, they were no earthly good. Well, I understand what she meant by that, right? People who didn't seem to... uh, to to be paying attention to what's going on in this world. But can I say a lot of Christians are so earthly-minded that they're of no heavenly good? Because we have not consciously set our mind on things that are above? So the Lord's Prayer, and by the way, do you know it? If you grew up, if you're of a certain age, you grew up going to a certain kind of church, you know it because you learned it. I wonder how many... Uh, Ten-year-olds who are going to church every week know the Lord's Prayer. 
Moms and dads, pay your kids 10 bucks to memorize the Lord's Prayer. It's the best 10 bucks you can give them. Churches, work this in somehow to what you're teaching your kids. We need to be people who know the Lord's Prayer, have it imprinted on our heart, and then use it as a template for our own prayer. J.I. Packer said the Lord's Prayer offers a model answer to the series of questions that God puts to us to shape our conversation with him. Here's what he means by that. When, when we pray our Father in heaven, here's the question that God is asking. Who do you believe I am? What am I to you? So God's asking us that question, and we respond and say, you are my Father in heaven. That's who I believe you are. And then God asks this question. What is it you really care about most? And our answer to that should be that your name would be hallowed, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be known, and your will would be done. Who do you believe I am? You're my Father in heaven. What do you care about most? That your name is hallowed, that your kingdom comes, that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then what are you asking for right now in light of all of that? And then you go on. Give me today my daily bread. I need provision. I need the the physical needs of life. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I need pardon for my sin. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I need protection, spiritual protection in my life. That's how the Lord's Prayer should function. And then the the praise ending answers the question, how is it that you can be so bold and so confident in asking me for these things as the king of the universe? And we're bold because we know you can do it and that when you do it, it will bring you glory. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. So we start by acknowledging who God is and praying that his name would be hallowed. In the 1500s, there was a a catechism, a document that was put together called the Heidelberg Catechism, a series of questions and answers for Christians to follow to learn basic doctrine. And one of the questions that covers the Lord's Prayer asked this, when we pray, hallowed be thy name, what is it we're praying? Well, first we're praying that we might rightly know God, that he is our Father in heaven, that we might with our life sanctify and glorify and praise his name, his works, his divine attributes would shine forth, his almighty power, his wisdom and goodness and righteousness and mercy and truth. And we are asking that we may so direct our whole lives through our words and actions that his name would not be dishonored or blasphemed because we always seek to honor and praise it. That's what it means to hallow God's name. It means ultimately to realign our own desires. It means to put the glory of God first in our lives. We have to understand that the praise and glory of God's name is the reason he made us. He made us to praise him and glorify him. The psalmist says, praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is to be praised. Our help is in the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. We could go on and on. We are created to bring glory and honor to God's name. So our first prayer is, Lord, I want your name to be hallowed. There's a whole industry in our world, the self-help industry, 
that tries to answer questions people have. Why am I so depressed? Why do I feel so empty and lack fulfillment? How do I break bad habits? How do I get people to like me? And could it be that rather than searching for self-help on those questions, we should be asking a different question? When, when the question is, why am I so depressed? Maybe it's because your life is focused on you and not on loving and serving others. Why does your life lack fulfillment? Why do you feel empty? Because you're not spending your time on eternal things like loving and serving God and others. How do you break bad habits? By renewing your mind and replacing the time you spend practicing those bad habits by time spent loving and serving God and others. You see how this works? And prayer is a part of what gets us to that. I hope our time together talking about this has renewed in you a fresh desire to be people of prayer, to be people who live our lives quorum Deo before the face of God. And I hope that you'll visit Daniel Henderson's website, strategicrenewal.com, for some of the help and resources that he can provide. Hope you have a great weekend this weekend. Hope you're able to worship together with your family in the church uh, this Sunday or, or whenever your church gets together over the weekend. And uh, we just pray God's blessing on you for this weekend. Thanks for tuning in this afternoon. This is Southern California Live on KKLA. I'm Bob Lapine. We'll see you again. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.